Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This is a crowd podcast. We didn't start the fire. The only podcast started by me, Billy Joel. Birth control. Ho Chi Minh. Richard Nixon back again. Moonshot. Woodstock. Watergate. Punk rock. Begin. Reagan. Palestine. Terror on the airline. I'm scared. As am I. Hello again, and welcome to episode 107 of We Didn't Start the Fire, the podcast that finds out everything that mattered in the post-war world and everything that explains the way the world is now, all dictated by Billy Joel's imagination and ability to make major global events right. I'm Tom Fordyce. I'm Katie Puckrick. Katie, we are going where no other podcast does because no one else has Billy. And no one dare introduce such an unwieldy lyric into a song as Terror on the Airline. What does he mean, Katie? What does Billy mean? Oh, well, I can only guess at what he really means. But what I think he's talking about is the fact that by the mid-1970s, airline hijackings were all the rage. I mean, in 1972 alone, there were a record 40 hijackings in the U.S., par exemple. So I guess... When you have a mercurial individual with a slapdash sense of idealism or grievance and combine that with a complete lack of security screening in any airport on the planet, it's take me to Cuba time. And uh, considering the placement of the lyric, tear on the airline in Billy Joel's Meisterwerker, we're guessing he's zeroing in on the ill-fated Air France Flight 139, which was hijacked by Palestinian and pro-Palestinian militants in 1976. Conveniently here to mull over all of this with us is journalist and author of The Skies Belong to Us, Love and Terror in the Golden Age of Hijacking, Brendan Kerner. Welcome, Brendan. Thanks for having me. So um, I'm intrigued and titillated by this idea that there was, in fact, a golden age of hijacking. How do you define that, Brendan? I really define it mostly as this period between, say, 1961 and 1973, when hijackings were pretty much a weekly, if not sometimes daily occurrence uh, throughout the world. You had basically no security at airports. Uh, it's pretty hard for people to process nowadays yeah. when it's such an ordeal to get through security. And it seems like every square inch of your body is checked before you can pass through to your gate. You know, back then, you could basically walk from the curb uh, where you were dropped off through the terminal, up the boarding stairs, and sometimes even onto your flight. And no one would ask you for ID. No one would you know, scan your body with a metal detector. No one would check your bag. Sometimes you could even buy your ticket on the plane while you were already in the air. Uh, so it was a very different attitude, very lackadaisical towards security and that created huge opportunities for people to hijack planes. It's funny you should say that because you see that in old black and white movies and B movies from from the 40s and 50s and 60s. Like people just sort of stroll, you know, running up those little metal stairs and taking off their trilby and uh, buying a ticket and a stiff drink from the stewardess. 
It was certainly a more glamorous period of air travel. Obviously, the model was rail travel and the way people were traded, uh, treated on, in rail cars. Um, yes, people dressed up and they were treated to steak dinners, even on short haul flights and could drink as much booze as they wanted on the flight. The downside was a lack of security and the fact that you might end up in a destination you did not plan on due to somebody with a gun on the plane. When did they start? So they really started in the late 1940s. The real impetus was the beginning of the Cold War and the descent of this iron curtain across Europe. And the initial hijackings were generally people from the east uh, behind uh, the iron curtain who wanted to get to the west. Uh, they couldn't get there any other way. There were no direct flights from a place like Czechoslovakia to the West or not, at least not easily attainable to the common man or woman. So you started to have a rash of people hijacking from the Soviet sphere to the Western sphere. That was the real beginning of it. And then it spread out from there. In the United States, which I write about a lot in my book, uh, the real impetus was the revolution in Cuba. And all of a sudden, Cuba, which had been a holiday destination for Americans, became this kind of forbidden place you couldn't get to very easily. And so starting in 1961, you had a lot of people who started hijacking planes in the U.S. and demanding to be taken to Havana. Was this purely a technological thing here, Brendan? Because I, I don't remember hearing many stories about train jackings. I suppose you had uh, piracy with boats. Is this a combination of opportunity, as you've described, with lack security, but also the relentless march of technology? Well, I think a big part of it is that planes can can cross real natural boundaries, such as waterways. So a train can only go so many places. So uh, it's pretty hard to get to across a border to somewhere where you can't be extradited. <laughs> Whereas a plane, you can go over vast distances to countries that are isolated and don't have extradition treaties. So I think it's more of a almost a, a legal thing, but also the technological edge being that planes can hop vaster distances than trains. Is it also one of those things, Brendan, where the copycat scenario comes into play, where someone spots a hijack situation in another country and thinks, OK, well, here are my aims and here's what I want to do. Do you know what? A hijacking would work particularly well for my aims as well. Yeah. And this is something I found so fascinating about the phenomenon is the virality of criminal behavior that once you got a few of these, they gained a tremendous amount of media coverage. And... This was also the dawn of a certain kind of mass media of television news broadcasts and of cameras being able to be taken uh, live on location and beam back footage for the nightly news. And so people would see these in their living rooms, maybe someone who had a grievance against uh, a government or was in a difficult personal circumstance would see this and would be titillated by the fact of, hey, I can take this dramatic step too and, and I can dramatically changed my life by going to a forbidden country or later on in this epidemic of hijackings, demanding vast amounts of money in exchange for my hostages and really radically change my life and get myself out of the situation. So the virality of the behavior and how kind of it was communicated through mass media is a huge part of the phenomenon. Yeah, there is sort of a dark glamour to crimes in the high skies. It's the ultimate reality sitcom. Brendan, you've got heroism, tragedy near Mrs. Lucky Breaks. 
the odd absurdity, which you talk about in your book, like just some ridiculous things that happen. Yeah, certainly. And um, I really made note of some of the landmark hijackings in my book. I think uh, one of the early ones that really changed the course of the epidemic was an Italian-American Marine named Rafael Minichiello. Um, who'd fought in Vietnam and come back to the United States and had a very minor financial dispute with the U.S. Marines, um, where he thought he was owed some back pay. And to solve this, he decided to break into the store at his uh, the base where he was and steal uh, goods that he thought would be equivalent to the amount he was owed. Of course, he was court-martialed for this. And so he decided to take an even more radical step, which was to hijack a plane uh, back to his native Italy, where he was actually greeted as a hero. Um, there was a huge anti-Vietnam War sentiment in the, in the Italian public at that time. He felt justified uh, in what he had done in stealing these goods from this Marine base. And actually, he became something of a sex symbol. Uh, he was very young and good looking. And he served a little bit of time uh, in jail in Italy, but they refused to extradite him back to the U.S. And in fact, when he was released from prison in Italy, he uh, signed a contract to star in a spaghetti Western film. Oh, wasn't there something about uh, a couple who hijacked a plane accompanied by their baby? Yeah, sure. So this was a hijacking in the U.S. where you had a, a couple with a, a, an infant, really, that decided to hijack a plane to Cuba. And uh, during the hijacking, the, the, the female half of the hijacking tandem, she actually forced uh, some of the flight attendants to knit a hat for the baby so the baby would be warm uh, during <laughs> during the flight. So there, there are literally dozens of these stories uh, of people with children, people with all sorts of reasons, some personal, some political, some clearly suffering from, from paranoid delusions or under other mental health crises, uh, who made all sorts of demands when they would hijack planes. And was there any commonality between these various hijackers? I mean, is there one way that you could profile a potential hijacker? So this is certainly something that governments tried to do. Uh, in the absence of, you know, universal security screening, uh, you did have, especially the U.S. government, try to compile a list uh, of certain things they think might tip off airport personnel to a potential hijacker. There were things like, you know, they were suspicious of people who were dressed in, say, army service plus clothing. Um, they were suspicious of people if you didn't really seem to care about your luggage. Uh, that was a tip off. But really, when I looked at, uh, you know, these literally hundreds of hijackings that occurred, there's only one real common thread that I saw. And that is the people who did it were in, in desperate circumstances. It was people who really felt at their wits end, felt like they had no choices in life, that they'd been cornered by circumstance or by their own poor decisions. And they had to take radical measures to change their lives. And this is what they chose, not, not wisely, but this was at that time something felt that they could resort to that would be one last roll of the dice to find a new direction in their lives. I was going to say, Brendan, it, it would appear quite simple if you wanted to stop hijackings, and that's to um, initiate quite severe security checks. But I guess the problem with the interconnectedness of the modern globe is that you could put the best security in place that you wished for. But if someone is going through very different levels of security um, in other parts of the world and perhaps where they're taking off from, then there's very little you can do about it. That was certainly an issue. But I think one of the bigger issues was the fact that the airlines themselves were very opposed to security. Um, remember, this was a relatively new industry, at least in terms of making air travel affordable to the masses. You had a huge 
huge increase in the number of people traveling by airplane, particularly in the 1960s. And the airlines thought that they wanted to make the experience as seamless as possible. They saw themselves as competing with trains and cars, um, which obviously don't have any security barriers. And so every time something would come up with a government saying, hey, we should really institute universal screening to, you know, head off the potential for a catastrophe in these hijackings, the potential huge loss of life, the airlines would resist. Um, and they would say, well, if we do this, no one likes to feel like a criminal just because they're going on a, on, on a trip and we'll lose customers. And this was a very glamorous industry. You have to think that in some ways they were kind of like the, the Google or Tesla of their days where the, the public was fascinated by new airplanes, Boeing. Like when a 747 came out, it was a huge deal. And so they had tremendous political clout in the US and other countries. They were clearly key to the economic growth of the globe, the, uh, connecting countries like never before. And so they were able to really stymie governmental efforts to institute security during those years. The very fact that Billy Joel included the lyric terror on the airline in his list song of big deal people and topics between 1949 and 1989 indicates that this whole spate of skyjackings had a real impact on the public. I mean, I even remember growing up in the 70s and and sort of hearing it on bandied about on late night talk shows on Johnny Carson, you know, another hijacking joke. How was it addressed in, in popular culture? Was it sort of uh, just part of the weather or was it novel and implicitly terrifying? I think it very much shifted over time. In the 1960s, people were basically hijacking planes to get to places they couldn't really go. Um, places like Cuba or you know, places on the other side of the Cold War. There was a sense in the public that there wasn't a huge danger. These people weren't out to, to, to murder mass numbers of people. Um, they were using hijacking as a negotiating tactic for very personal reasons. So they could reinvent themselves somewhere that they idealize as some kind of paradise. But you saw that really begin to shift in the early 1970s. Um, one, you had, you know, guerrilla movements start to use this as a tool to gain media attention and to commit somewhat more violent acts. Uh, you had in 1970 an incident where uh, Palestinian guerrillas hijacked a number of planes at once and actually blew them up in the desert, uh, not with the passengers aboard, but did destroy the airplanes, which was incredibly rare for these kinds of incidents at that time. And then also you had these hijackers making increasingly bizarre, outlandish and dangerous demands, particularly for things like money. You had hijackers beginning to demand millions of dollars. And once this happened, you had a law enforcement response that led to things like shootouts and passenger deaths. And it's really when the blood began to flow in a lot of ways and these violent incidents increased that it shifted from something that people could joke about on The Tonight Show um, to something that people really up in arms about and became really frightened uh, of the potential for catastrophe in the skies. When we start moving into the, the mid-70s then, Brendan, where are the dangerous hotspots? Are there certain routes? Are there certain airports, departure airports that are particularly dangerous to go through? Yeah, well, certainly one thing that, that changed the, the dynamics is uh, measures the United States took 
starting in early 1973, uh, the United States had really been the epicenter of the global epidemic up to that point. But there had been an incident in November 1972 where a group of hijackers actually threatened to crash a plane into a uranium reactor in Tennessee. Uh, and that's really the moment when the United States government you know, put its foot down and said, we have to institute universal passenger screening. We have to go through metal detectors and have your bag searched. So that kind of curtails the number of incidents in the United States. But we don't have a similar response in places like Western Europe and the Middle East. And there it really becomes a tool of organized uh, political movements, terrorist groups. And that really becomes the hotbed going into the mid-1970s. This is an advertisement from BetterHelp Therapy Online. Hello, Fire listeners. It's Tom here. I hope you're enjoying the series. I wanted to tell you about BetterHelp. We all carry around different stresses in life, big and small. A lot of the people we talk about in this series definitely did. And as we know, if we keep those stresses bottled up, it can impact us negatively. That's where therapy can be great. Therapy isn't just for people who've experienced major trauma. It can help you understand the way that your brain works and why you feel a particular way. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's all online, designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. All you need to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a registered therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. With over 1,000 therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Fire listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com WDSTF, as in, we didn't start the fire. So, that is betterhelp.com WDSTF. Eat stress-free this spring with Factors' delicious ready-to-eat meals. Always fresh and never frozen, each meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. I eat flexitarian, so with a weekly menu of 35 options, there's plenty for me to choose from. So, last night I had the Moroccan-style almond-crusted salmon. It was absolutely delicious. These are no-fuss, no-mess meals. Factor eliminates the hassle of prepping, cooking or cleaning up. Simply heat and savour the good stuff. With over 60 add-ons like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks and smoothies, there's plenty of options to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. Plus, you can customise your weekly meals and pause or reschedule deliveries to suit your lifestyle. Factor is your solution for fast premium meals without the need for cooking. What are you waiting for? Head to factormeals.com slash WDSTF50 and use the code WDSTF50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code WDSTF50 at factormeals.com slash WDSTF50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Brendan, I want to get into the story of Air France Flight 139, which 
departed from Tel Aviv on the 27th of June 1976. It was carrying 246 mainly Jewish and Israeli passengers and a crew of 12. It flew to Athens, Greece, where it picked up an additional 58 passengers, including the four hijackers. Yeah, well, it brings together so many themes, actually, Katie, that we've touched on in the in the course of the podcast, because the hijackers, there are two Germans from revolutionary cells, but there are two Palestinians from the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine. The plane refuels in Benghazi in Libya and then flies onto Entebbe in Uganda, which is at that point under the dictatorship of Idi Amin, who is a particularly uh, horrendous man and in some ways deserves to be featured in Billy's song. Um, another question for, for Billy another time. Yes. We then see a standoff, Katie, for a number of days before the Israeli government decides that it's not going to negotiate for the release of the Israeli citizens on board, but is instead going to send in forces to attempt the liberation. In the meantime, though, the hostage takers are letting groups of children, women and the elderly escape. A funny detail, Tom, from the story is that Idi Amin, even though he was uh, not so tacitly, quite overtly allowing this to all take place in Uganda, he also was stopping by the airport to update the hostages about, uh, you know, don't worry, guys, we're having a look at this. We're going to we're, we're trying to free you through negotiations. And then the actual deadline kept getting moved by the hostage takers, but they were threatening that they were going to start killing hostages if they weren't going to get their demands met. Yeah, Katie, so the decision is, is taken by the Israeli government to send in commandos. One little detail which stuck out for me, Katie, the initial idea was that the commandos would be dropped into Lake Victoria, where they would board inflatable boats oh, yeah. uh, to land at Entebbe Airport. This was uh, until the point that it was uh, pointed out to people that Lake Victoria is full of the Nile crocodile and that people in inflatable boats may well end up being munched. <laughs> by the crocodiles before landing at the airport. And also, I just have this idea of commandos and these little you know, rubber dinghies with tiny little <laughs> ice cream paddles still like, <laughs> desperately paddling to get to land. So it just does not seem that efficient in terms of rescuing people. Absolutely. And, and the rescue mission when it comes, Katie, is relatively effective. It takes 53 minutes. The hijackers are all killed in the action. A number of Ugandan soldiers who are defending the airport terminal are also killed. But of the 106 hostages, 102 are rescued. We have talked about in our previous episode about the situation in Palestine, Katie, and some of the uh, things that we see here reflect the tensions there, the desire of Israel and Israel's government to protect its citizens at all cost, and also the protests that were coming from some of the Palestinians who had been left disenfranchised by the Israeli state. There's all these uh, butterfly effects and knock-on effects. In this story, Brendan, there's a detail that stuck out to me. I was really impressed by the ingenuity of the woman who faked a miscarriage to escape early on. This was when the hijackers first identified themselves. Are there such a thing as top tips for at least how to stay alive during a hostage taking? Is there a strategy that works? Yeah, so I think the number one thing is that, at least in this golden age of hijacking, you have to understand that the people that, that took these planes use it as a negotiation tactic. So they weren't in it just to like kill the maximum number of people possible. They wanted to hold on to the hostages in the plane until they got whatever they demanded. So I think the number one thing you wanted to do in these situations is one, kind of bide your time and keep your head down until you could figure out, number one, where you were going, um, because that was often opaque. And number two, you know, what the hijackers wanted, right? So, you know, 
you could then, if you could determine what your destination might be, then you can, might be able to formulate a plan of how you get off the plane. One thing that happened quite frequently, in fact, is that the hijackers, you know, a lot of them were in the throes of a kind of uh, paranoid delusions or mental health crises. And so oftentimes they would make, you know, very rigorous, detailed plans about certain phases, but they would neglect little details like when we land, how do we prevent people from just pulling the exit handles and jumping out onto the tarmac and running away, which happened quite frequently, in fact. Uh, so that's one thing I would do uh, if you could transport me back to 1972 and I'm I'm on a plane and, and it turns out that I hear through scuttlebutt that some hijacker in the cockpit wants $5 million and then wants to go to North Vietnam. I would wait until we landed, understood where I was, and then look for the nearest exit when the hijacker had their back turned because odds are they probably haven't thought through this very complex plan far enough to really prevent you from doing that. Brendan, in your, in your expert opinion, what were the most successful countermeasures that governments around the world took to prevent a further spate of hijacking? So they're all pretty easy, which is uh, what's so fascinating, like why it took so long. So the countermeasures that were in place for many years were incredibly complex and kind of catered to the airlines that didn't want to actually make passengers go through any rigmarole. So these things like the checklist looking to see like, oh, is this person wearing a, an army jacket? Do they not care about their luggage, those weren't that effective. But you know what was, was making everyone go through a metal detector because so many hijackings were just someone having a handgun, maybe an old revolver that might not even be loaded, would just walk right onto the plane with it. So just metal detectors and checking people's luggage. But I think something else that really bears discussion is the airline's policy of giving in no matter what. So this was formed pretty early on in this epidemic of hijackings. The airlines did a, a cost-benefit analysis, right? So on one hand, they could have instituted security uh, in all airports and hired security guards and spent untold millions of dollars. But they figured, no, it's much cheaper if we just tell our pilots and our crews that whatever the hijacker wants, just just let them have it. Just just don't even try it. In fact, you will be in trouble if you try to resist and try to break up the hijacking because we want the passengers to be safe, number one, and, and bring the plane back intact, number two. So I think that that obviously led to hijackers knowing they could make more and more outlandish demands and get whatever they wanted. So I think once pilots and crew members started to fight back, and started to scheme and be like, well, we don't care. This is too dangerous. We're going to take measures to try to foil these hijackers. As happened increasingly through 1971, 72, at kind of the end of this golden age, that really, really tilted the deck against hijackers and made it much riskier for hijackers to try to seize these planes. There's a detail in your book, Brendan, about the fact that Maps to Cuba were considered standard equipment in cockpits during this time? Yeah, and this is all part of the airline's policy of maximum cooperation with hijackers that, you know, once they were really having a hijacking to Cuba taking place every week, pretty much throughout the late 1960s, the airline tried to make it as easy as they could to facilitate these journeys. So they actually put uh, maps to Cuba uh, in every cockpit and also Spanish phrase books. So pilots who didn't speak Spanish could uh, talk to the tower in Havana and land the plane safely. And then you often have these stories about the passengers um, getting off the plane in Havana and 
the Cuban government would hold on to the plane for like a day, pretty much holding it for ransom. The airline would have to pay to get it back. And the passengers would go to some aging hotel in Havana and buy a bunch of cigars and rum and try to take them back to the U.S. And for them, it was kind of like a an unplanned miniature holiday. And, and you had a lot of great cocktail party stories emanating from those experiences. And what would happen, incidentally, to the actual hijackers who were, oh, my goodness, it's so fantastic. We're back in our mother country in Cuba. What would become of them? Yeah, so that's the thing. So you have to understand, this is like uh, the 1960s. The revolution is fairly new. There's not news coming out of Cuba. And so a lot of people idealized the revolution and idealized the situation in Cuba. And so you had a lot of people from the U.S., both of Cuban heritage and not thinking they would go down there and find this kind of socialist paradise and they'd be welcomed with open arms and maybe have a parade down down the, the Central Avenue in Havana. And that's not what happened at all. Uh, usually you would get there and the secret police would interrogate you and they would kind of decide, is this person dangerous or just some kind of fool? And if they decided you were just a fool, um, they would basically assign you to live in this dormitory in South Havana. It was called uh, Hijacker's House. And they you'd have to live in a tiny little cubicle with a bunch of other hijackers. And they'd give <laughs> you uh, a little bit of money to survive on. And, and most people got fed up after a few months or a few years and would find passage on a freighter uh, somehow back to Canada or Mexico and come back across the border to the U.S. Uh, if the secret police decided you were up to no good, you were someone who was a criminal, um, you'd be sent to a gulag. You know, basically have to harvest sugarcane in these nightmarish conditions. And uh, it was a really awful existence. So very few of those hijackers found what they were looking for in Cuba. Going back to the Air France Flight 139 in 1976, uh, there's an aspect of the story that caught my eye. Twelve members of the Air France crew refused to leave, Tom. I, I thought that was so interesting. And I'm wondering, Brendan, in your experience, you mentioned crew members increasingly throughout the 70s starting to fight back. But w was there a sense of loyalty to their ship, do you think, or, or, or to the other people who were in peril? Was there a sort of a psychological aspect to being a crew member during these crises? Yeah, 100%. And I saw this time and again in my research where not only would crew members, you know, decide to stay on board, even if they hijacker told them, hey, you can leave, they would often stay on board because they do have that kind of ancient devotion to, to the vessel, you know, that the captain goes down with the ship and that extended to all members of the crew. But even beyond that, what I saw several times is where hijackers, you know, would force a plane to land and they would request a new plane, maybe a plane that could travel a longer distance. And then you would have uh, crew members who were not involved in the hijacking at all, who were on their downtime, and they would volunteer to come to the airport to board this new plane to fly these hijackers all over the world. One of the main hijackings I talk about in my book was a couple that wanted to fly from Los Angeles to Algeria. And uh, amazingly, like a whole new crew volunteered to come you know, they were back home with their families or, or enjoying their downtime, answered this call to come to the airport and get on this long haul flight 
and fly these dangerous hijackers who claim to have a bomb thousands and thousands of miles to this hostile country, and they never knew if they'd be allowed to leave. Algeria at that time was very hostile to the West. Um, so I was really amazed by the bravery and the devotion of, of these airline employees in dealing with this epidemic. Casey, there's something I've been wondering as, as we've been chatting to Brendan, and Brendan, you, you know, your book title refers to it as the golden age of hijacking. Is there another way of looking at this? I mean, I don't know how many million flights there are across the globe every day, but, but perhaps the the extraordinary thing, particularly in the period that we're talking about here in the in the 60s and the 70s, when airline security was so lax that actually there weren't more hijackings. Well, there were certainly a lot, um, <laughs> but you know the opportunity was there, and I think pro I'm sure a lot of people saw what hijackers were doing when they were covered on the nightly news uh, uh, on a weekly basis. For sure, I'm sure a lot of people saw these hijackings and admired what these people did and, and could see themselves doing it. Of course, it took a, a, a huge amount of foolhardiness because very few of these hijackers ended up in happy circumstances, you could say. Most were apprehended. But I think there were a lot of people who romanticized and uh, looked up to or, or idolized these hijackers as people who were striking against a system that a lot of people were aggrieved with at that time. So there were a lot of hijackings. Uh, could there have been more? Certainly, there were a lot of people who probably wish they could have done so. And I will say that one of the hijackers I interviewed, something that um, he told me uh, that always stuck with me is that, you know, he was proud of himself for having done this because he said, you know, I had the, the guts to do what a lot of people wanted to do. And that always stuck with me. It's kind of an eerie thought that um, he was just one of many who had this idea that I'm going to steal a plane and take it wherever I want to go. So, Katie... Billy's song comes to an end in 1989. So when he talks about terror on the airline, we obviously assume that he's talking about this period in the 70s. Brendan, did it affect in any way passenger numbers, this idea of terror on the airline? Was there any impact on the number of people who were willing to fly, who wanted to fly? No, not really. And in fact, if you look at the number of people fly, you know, traveling by air in those years, it was just kind of a, a straight shot up every year, more and more passengers. So... Ultimately, people kind of brushed it aside and it became over time this curiosity and I think a time that most people forgot about, especially in the 1990s when you had so few hijackings, pretty much virtually none, uh, certainly in American airspace, but throughout the world, it became like a, a relic of, of a bygone time. So it's amazing to me how quickly this phenomenon was forgotten and buried in history. The effect of the September 11th, 2001 attacks on the World Trade Center and the Pentagon must have made a nudge on this skyjacking industry, hopefully for the better in that it's even harder than ever now to terrorize from the skies, I hope. Yeah, well, so what the hijackers in that case did is they exploited a few weaknesses uh, in the system that had not been addressed for many years because there had been so few skyjackings. Two things in particular. One is the let's negotiate 
attitude still held sway in the boardrooms of airlines. I think, too, is that when they, uh, they did institute universal passenger screening in the United States, there was a debate in the 70s about who would pay for it. Um, the airlines wanted the government to, to handle it and, and make aviation security a federal responsibility, whereas the government wanted the airlines to hire personnel and have whole security departments. And they actually negotiated for a compromise that was the worst of all possible worlds, which was the airlines would be responsible, but they could subcontract security. And of course, if you're a business that's a public company, uh, you're looking for the, the lowest bidder. So they would subcontract to you know private agencies that really had almost no training and really didn't do a very good job. And that's why the hijackers uh, on September 11th were able to get through box cutters and the weapons they used to take over those planes. So those two uh, pieces of the puzzle you know, are why that tragedy was able to occur and have been addressed in intervening years, of course. Brendan Kerner, thank you so much for joining us on FIRE and telling Katie and I so much about this dark but fascinating topic. Thanks a million for having me. <laughs> Our lives were never the same after we learned our 21-year-old daughter, Kristen, was murdered by her ex-boyfriend. It's a parent's worst nightmare. How much did we really know about domestic violence back then? Clearly not enough. Now we know plenty. We know domestic violence, or DV, can happen to anyone. One in three women suffer physical violence at the hands of intimate partners during their lifetimes. One in three. I'm Bill Mitchell, host of the When Dating Hurts podcast. And my interviews with DV counselors, law enforcement, and especially actual DV survivors give the pandemic of domestic violence the attention it deserves. The When Dating Hurts podcast. It's a series of lives being saved. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to, but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts. There's so many things to worry about nowadays when you get on a plane. In addition to, are you going to be stuck with a middle seat? <laughs> or is there going to be something unspeakable in the public restroom? Have they remembered that I'm a vegetarian, Katie, as I put down on the form? Or am I going to get some weird sort of chicken dish? If your seatmate has some sort of strange smell that you are ensnared by for the entire eight-hour flight. And so add to that, yeah, you have to think about, are you trapped with some potential hijackers? And what's your move? Do you think about these things when you're on a plane? Or do you just kind of block yourself out with junk food and <laughs> uh, junk movies? <laughs> I think because this period was such a huge thing in the 70s, when I actually started flying when I was old enough, we were in the 90s, and luckily airport security was a lot 
tighter, Katie. My usual tactic is to get our book out early and then to hope that the person sitting next to me gets the hint and doesn't just start talking to me because clearly I'm reading a book and I don't actually want to have a conversation. Is that antisocial? Yeah. If you would like another podcast to listen to, you have to try The Secret History of Flight 149. This is absolutely incredible. Imagine, Katie, boarding a flight thinking you're heading on holiday, but instead you get taken hostage by Saddam Hussein. Oh no, it sounds pretty crazy. But in 1990, that's what happened to the passengers and crew of British Airways Flight 149. What happened next has been called the most shocking government cover-up of the last 30 years. Journalist Stephen Davis has been reporting on this for three decades, and now he's made it into a series. Yeah, it's a truly incredible story with so many questions. Why was the plane allowed to land at all? Why? Why have secrets and lies persisted for so many years? Why? Katie, listen to The Secret History of Flight 149 now, wherever you get your podcasts. Don't ask why about that. If you'd like to get in touch with a story or a guest idea, you can contact us on email at fire at crowdnetwork.co.uk or on social media where it's Spread That Fire on Instagram and the Twitter. And make sure that you check out our merch collection at spreadthatfire.com. Next episode, Casey, we should be talking about Ayatollahs in Iran. Or Iran, depending which way you want to say it. Crowd Network. A place where you belong. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words, a podcast that presents the unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. As a country, we need these stories more than ever. Stories from Americans who have borne the battle, including 30-year-old remastered interviews with veterans from World War I recounting their time in the trenches of Europe, and with veterans from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and from our most recent conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other battlefields Americans may never have heard of. Hear their stories by listening to Warriors in Their Own Words wherever you find podcasts. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the facts from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the allied powers go too far? in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? 
These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon.